Our Father, we delight to come to you to gather as your people. And each time we gather, we celebrate the gift of salvation. We celebrate the glory of the resurrection. For indeed, we are here this morning as are all your people gathered around all of the world who truly belong to you. The fruit of our resurrected Savior who was born and who was the faithful son to accomplish for us redemption. And so we gather as your people to offer you worship, even as the kings recorded in Scripture, the Magi came to offer the child worship, though still lying in a feeding trough. But we come to offer you worship as the exalted Messiah, our King, our Savior, the one whom we worship, the one whom by your grace we have come to trust, the one whom we long to be with in our hearts, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, as the end of Revelation directs us to do. And so, as we wait and as we pray in anticipation of your return, would you this morning be our teacher as we open your word? Would you instruct us? Would you reveal to us your glory? Would you excite in us a love for Christ that is more intense, that is greater, that is more full, more comprehensive in our lives And so we ask you to do these things. We depend on you. We look to you. And we trust you. Hear us. Because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Which we began finally last week. Uh, After a lot of preparation, uh, we began John's opening prologue. Looking at this great book of Revelation Standing as a mysterious book, and for that reason ignored by many because it is hard to understand, um, but not really. And as we noted last week, it was given to us not only to understand, but to consider, to meditate on, and to obey that we might know God's blessing in our life, that we might know His favor as we respond to Him in faith and in trust. And so that's where we come again this morning. Uh, We begin this morning, moving on from the prologue into the beginning of his messages to the seven churches, to the seven churches. And these are churches that find themselves in various situations and circumstances of struggle and of threat. And so it is a message of encouragement. It is a message that the church needs not merely these seven churches to whom he's writing, but Christians throughout the ages, all who desire to live godly in the present age, will know what it means to suffer and to be persecuted and to be threatened in various ways. And so it was with these churches, so it is with the churches that followed after them, so it is with the church today both as it suffers presently and as it anticipates greater suffering in the future. And so it is a word of encouragement. And in that sense, all of Scripture is really a word of encouragement. He said in Romans chapter 15 that the things that were written beforehand were for our encouragement as we look at God's work in the life of His people Israel and now as we look at God's work in the life of His church and His people and those he has redeemed. We need a word of encouragement. We need comfort. We need hope. We need to have something to rest in, to be grounded in. We need conviction that is certain and is sure. We need encouragement. And that's what he gives us this morning. And the only encouragement, the only true encouragement, the only real encouragement 
The only lasting encouragement is that which points our eyes away from ourselves, away from this world, and back up to the glory of God and all he's done for us in Christ. So the theme of this next section, verses 4 through 8, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, which we'll begin this morning and finish next week, is this. He's giving us four declarations about God then. Four declarations about God to the church to encourage hope and to call to repentance. To encourage hope and repentance. Hope where there's suffering and repentance where there is compromise with this world. So four declarations about God. Four declarations about God, who is the very foundation of our hope to the church to encourage hope and repentance. And these are the four declarations that we'll consider. One, that the gospel of grace is an announcement of our peace with God. The gospel of grace and peace with God. Secondly, God's glory in the person and work of Christ. Thirdly, the guarantee of Christ's return and judgment and salvation. And fourthly, the grandeur of God's supremacy over all. So it is the gospel, it is the encouragement of the gospel, it is the encouragement of the completed work of Christ, it is the encouragement of his return, which we remember in the supper this morning, and it is the reminder of God's absolute, sovereign, glorious authority over everything, and that is in verse 8. Let's read verses 4 through 8, and then we'll look at it more closely. So beginning in verse 4, so Revelation 1, verse, verses 4 through 8. A John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom of priest, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come the Almighty. Look back up at verse 4 and let's notice first the encouragement of the gospel. The gospel of grace and peace with God. The announcement that God's people, those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ, have received from him grace and are at peace with God. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so he identifies the recipients right up front. These are the ones to whom the letter was written, the seven churches which which are in Asia. These are, of course, the seven churches that he will mention in chapters 2 through 3. The churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John is writing to these churches because they compromise those congregations with whom he was in the most intimate fellowship and with whom he ministered in the majority of his life and his ministry from Ephesus in Asia Minor. But notice at the beginning that these are seven churches. Seven churches. Now the use of the number seven, particularly in prophetic literature, is often seen as a numerical representation of completion and perfection. And so there's a lot that is often made of this. You can think of the seven days of creation And certainly the number seven is thematic throughout the book of Revelation. 
You have the seven spirits, seven golden lampstands. There are seven stars, so mentioned in verse 16. Later, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven angels who stand before God, seven peals of thunder, a great red dragon having seven heads. On his heads were seven diadems. In other words, it's a theme, the number seven. And it does have, in some sense, a prophetic significance of the idea of completeness. But the fact that he wrote to seven churches is noticeable because there were other churches in the region of Asia Minor. There were, for example, Colossae, Hierapolis, Choaz, Magnesia, Tralles. There were other churches that John could have included within the sphere of his ministry. So what do we are to make that he's writing to these seven churches who are in Asia? Well, it's likely that John chose these seven churches, which are historical churches, historical people, historical congregations that he's writing to with a very specific message addressed as well to their specific situation. He's writing to these seven, as I noted, because these are the ones whom he probably had the most intimate ties with, but also because they represented various spiritual situations facing churches at that time, and therefore stand representatively as well of the kind of threats and suffering and situations that the church has faced throughout the ages. In other words, the message to these churches is applicable to the church uh, throughout the history of of her existence until the return of Christ. They are representative of the threats, the threats of a fallen world. They are representative of the sins that tempt the church to compromise. They are representative of the kind of suffering that God's people will endure throughout the ages. In that sense, they are representative of the church and they are chosen by John uh, to be that. And they are facing various degrees of threat. We've looked at some of that in the past. There is, again, the threat of false teaching that had made its way into the church, which is a great theme of apostolic concern and therefore God's concern throughout her history. You think of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, to the elders at Ephesus, when he warned them that wolves would arise even from among their own number, bringing in false teaching and false doctrine to lead some astray and to cause division. There is the threat always of persecution. We remember that the church is the church militant, as some old writers used to describe her, which is simply to say that we are the people of God in a hostile world. We are the kingdom of God. We are the representation of God's presence on the earth in a hostile land against an enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy the work of God. We have a devil who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can destroy. And so the church is in hostile territory. And so he's writing to exert them and by principle us who are those who belong to Christ. And how does he begin this encouragement? Then notice what he says at the beginning. John to the seven churches that are in Asia Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. He begins the encouragement by affirming the heart of the gospel. Now you who are familiar with the New Testament understand that this is a common greeting. It's a common greeting from in many of the letters to the churches. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace are at the very heart of what God accomplished for his people. 
And it's usually followed, if you were to go throughout the epistles, with some version of from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, some version of that theme. Here, however, he uniquely brings us to the Trinitarian source of this grace and this peace, the triune God, which we noted last week. But what is of significance, just to notice it first, is these are the glorious truths that are the comfort of us, his people. Grace can be translated, this term, in a variety of ways, forgiveness, thanksgiving, favor, gift. But here it has that idea, that theological idea, that idea that we understand primarily as grace as that fount of God's goodness and favor to those he has redeemed in Christ. The, the very fount of our life in Christ and of our forgiveness. Peace has the basic idea here of the, uh, the absence of hostility or harmonious or favorable relationship. And so grace is the foundation of God's provision for his righteousness in Christ. And peace is the result of that grace. You can think of Paul's words to the Romans. We've been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God. And so at the very beginning, God wants to communicate through John this message, that you may have temporary hostility and war with your own sin and in a rebellious world, but you have received grace from me, and you are at peace with God. Now, this is an incredible encouragement to the sinner who knows himself to be so. If you are a sinner, and you are, more I should say, if you recognize yourself as a sinner, if you've come to grasp the reality of your sin, then you understand what are the most comforting words that you could hear from a holy God, particularly in the context of Revelation, in which judgment is going to be a primary theme against the rebellious of God. And that is that you have received grace, that you are at peace with God, that he has reconciled you to himself that he has reconciled himself to you in Christ, that you stand not in the fear of the judgment that is to come, but that you are one who can endure that judgment because you are at peace with the one who will bring it. You are at peace with God. It's a comforting message from the king. It is to say, you stand in my grace. I come to you as one with whom I am at peace, with whom I have granted forgiveness one who is a citizen in my kingdom, who will know only my strength by my spirit to uphold you in whatever you face, who has the assurance of the promise of victory and joy in my presence. So imagine in the light of the glory of God and the glory of Christ, all that is to be revealed with the judgments of the trumpets and or the seals and the trumpets and the bowls with all of the devastation that is to come upon the earth with all of the threats and the warnings to know that you are at peace with God you are at peace with God through the cross does that bring you comfort I mean it, it is a common epistolary greeting it is something that we read often can you imagine of those who have come to trust in Christ, have you thought much about that? Don't read over it too quickly. You've received grace if you belong to Christ. You have received pardon for your sin. You are at peace with God, as we've noted often. There is no sin that he will judge that we are not guilty of or capable of being guilty of. If we have received this message of grace and peace with God, it is because the king of all of the universe, the king of the world, because the holy God has extended to us by his own purposes, by his own sovereign grace, this greeting, 
grace and peace in Christ because he has accomplished it in his son and we have nothing to fear if we belong to him and have trusted to him. So this is an opening encouragement. Grace to you and peace. That stands at the beginning. But then John does something marvelous. He grounds it into this incredible reality of God. And what is unique here about John as opposed to many of the other epistles is that this is a Trinitarian declaration of God's nature and of his glory. And there's a reason for that. But let's consider this more closely. So the second encouragement then is this is that this grace and peace, this extension of peace with God is grounded in his glory and the person and work of Christ. So although it's Trinitarian, as we'll see, it's going to find its greatest weight, its greatest explanation in the person of Christ. But note what he says first, or who he directs us to first, is God the Father. God the Father, that is the one described in these words. Grace to you and peace from... Him who is and who was and is to come and the one who is coming. The one who is coming. Now, this is a title that will be used several times. You think of Revelation 1.8. Later, he'll say, we'll get to next week, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. In chapter 4, verse 8, There are the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings or full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And chapter 11, 17 He receives this praise, we give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. In Revelation 16, 5, the angel of the waters said, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you have judged these things. In other words, this is a declaration about the particular glory of God who stands as the sovereign one over those to whom he is writing, over their enemies, indeed over the world. And I want you to notice, first of all, this is a direct connection with God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 3.14. You remember this word that God gave to Moses. It was his name that he revealed to him, and John is very intentionally connecting with this revelation of God. You remember the situation of Exodus, that these were people who were in bondage to Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt. They were steeped, many of them, and influenced by the idolatry of that nation, which we see even is what they kept easily going back to, even once delivered. And yet they were a people who knew their identity of being the covenant people of the covenant promise given to their father Abraham, to, to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so they longed for freedom and they called out to God. And it says in chapter 2 of Exodus that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and he took notice of them. And in doing so, he called out Moses from the wilderness, Moses who had fled into exile essentially after killing an Egyptian in defense of one of his 
brethren, a fellow Israelite. God finds him. God reveals himself to him in the most unique way, particularly in a burning bush. And you remember the scene. It's one of the most well-known scenes in all of Scripture that God came to him. God said, remove your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, in verse 6, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then God calls him as he speaks to him from the bush and the angel of the Lord. And he says to him that you are going to be the one to lead my people out of their bondage and out of the slavery and out of the oppression that they are suffering under Pharaoh, Egypt. And then Moses is concerned about this and he says, well, if I go to them, whom shall I say sent me? And God then reveals his covenant name, or he explains his covenant name, and he says this in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It was a statement then of God's nature. He does not explain anything to Moses. He simply declares that The God who is the God who entered into covenant with you is the God who is. He is the God who is. Now, in terms of theology, this looks to one of the most glorious and foundational realities about God, and that is God's independence. A fancy theological word is his aseity. That simply means this, that God has life within himself. God is utterly dependent from his creation. God exists because it is his own will to exist. It is necessary that God exist. God could not exist. He is independent in this sense that he is The only one who has life within himself. He is the only one who has necessary existence. Everything else depends on him. Everything material and spiritual he brought into being. It exists because of him and depends on him for existence. That is an incredibly glorious statement. Meditate on that for a while and you will be overwhelmed to think about the existence of God as I am. God simply is. He is not threatened by anything. He is dependent on nothing. He simply is God. Everything depends on him. Even more, however, is not merely to make a theological statement, but with as all of Scripture, and particularly here in the mission of Moses, it is a statement about God to assure his people that he is going to act And that his actions will be successful. His promises will be fulfilled. One put it this way, comment on this verse. The mere knowledge of the name would not have been of much use to them. The question, what is his name, presupposed that the name expressed the nature and operations of God. That God would manifest indeed the nature expressed in his name. In other words, the God who is, the God who simply says, I am. The God who offers no explanation to anyone. The God that needs to make no empty prom- or makes no empty promises is the God who will be faithful to his covenant and will deliver his people from their oppression. It is a statement of his nearness. He had already told Moses in verse 12 of of Exodus 3, he says to him, he says, I will be with you. And that is an encouragement that he had to remind him of at other times as well. 
You think of particularly when he was on Mount Sinai and the people were rebellious and he's like, who can lead this people? And God says, I will go with you. And Moses says, well, if you don't go with me, then I'm undone. I can't do anything that you've called me to. But God assures him that he will go with him and then he gives him a glimpse at his glory. Here he says, I will be with you and who will be with you? The God who is. And then he says in verse 16, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done in Egypt, the message to his people. This God who is is the God who is certain to fulfill his promise, the God who is near his servant, the God who is concerned about his people, the God who will bring about his promises, the God who remembers his covenant and will act according to his word. And it's grounded in who God is. And you might be familiar with Jesus himself and his incarnation identifies himself with this same God. No doubt the angel of the Lord who was in the bush who was speaking to Moses. He told the leaders before Abraham was in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. This will be unfolded more even in the, the opening words of Revelation the epistles connect this reality of God directly to his upholding in Hebrews 1.3, all things by the word of his power. Now think about how that connects and, we'll, and see why this would be an encouragement. To say that he upholds all things by the word of his power is simply to say this, and consider then the majesty and the holiness of God, that God is eternal, he is infinite in his being, which is a concept that we cannot conceive but it means then that being infinite in his being, infinite in his power, infinite in his glory, infinite in relation to time, eternal in his nature, that when he speaks, that word has an eternal effect. He spoke creation into existence. There was a time when it did not exist. He spoke it into existence. And because of his own nature, and that word is attached to his own eternal, omnipotent nature, creation always exists. Because he spoke it and because he's God, such is the power and the glory of God. His words cannot fail. He is. He is eternal. He is glorious. And God has, in his triune glory, determined and worked in such a way that the work of creation and the work of redemption is particularly manifest through the Son. So Colossians 1.17 says that all things were created through him and for him. And 117 says this, in him all things hold together. And so here he's at the very beginning connecting them to this glorious God. This God, now he expands on it here from him who is, and he, and he actually says this in such a striking way, that him who is and who was and is to come. And so while him who is connects to the revelation of God as I am and encompasses all of the eternal glory of God, here he expands it just for emphasis and says, I am who is, who is present with you, who is now your God, who is now working among you. Later that will be manifested in him who walks through the churches and gives them a message. And I am the God who was, I am the same God who has always been with my people. I am the God who was, who has revealed himself consistently throughout the ages there's the covenant God, the faithful covenant-keeping God, and I am the God who is to come. I am the God whose coming is near. 
And no doubt picking up on that very last statement of verse 3, the time is near. In verse 1, the things which must soon take place is the God who is and the God who is to come. He is the God who is to come, or better, the one who is coming. And the idea and the imagery here is striking. It is the God not only who is to come in the future, although that is the promise, but it is the God who is in process even now in bringing about his future presence and the conditions that are necessary and that will attend his future presence and his coming. So it's a striking statement, particularly that last part, the one who is coming. The one who is coming. We don't usually associate that with the Father, do we? We think usually associate that with the Son, the coming of the Son. And indeed, we should, which we'll expand on next week. That's verse 7. Behold, He is coming. The He here is the exalted Christ who is coming to establish His kingdom. He's coming in judgment. He's coming to bring salvation to His people. He is the one whom every eye will see. He is the one over whom the tribes of the earth will mourn. But here in verse 4, it is the Father who is to come. It is to come. And His coming then is bound and wrapped up inextricably with the coming of Christ. So the full presence of God, here the Father, is bound inextricably as the triune God with the coming of Christ. And that's that Trinitarian glory that we'll see throughout. Remember that we said whenever God acts, God acts as a trinity. God acts with a triune glory. There is a pattern throughout Scripture that we see that the Father plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit brings it about. You see that consistently. In creation, the Father planned creation. It was through the Son, and yet it was the power of the Spirit that made that word effective to bring it about. In redemption, the Father planned redemption. The Son accomplished the redemption. He was the mediator. The Spirit applies redemption and brings about all the elect, giving them life and bringing them to faith in Christ. And that goes in every part. Our sanctification in every detail. It is the pattern. God always acts as God triune. God always acts as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we have a tendency, as we noted, sometimes to always to think of God as three gods, like the, the Father is over here doing His thing, the Son is over here doing His thing, the Spirit is doing His thing, and, and somehow it all works together. But that's not the portrait of Scripture. God acts as God, as one God who is triune in His glory. And that's particularly manifest here. He is the one who is to come. The Father is the one who is and the one who is to come. And yet this being, this God who acts and this God who is coming is, even as the Father, is intimately bound to the Son. Just consider some of the ways that this is manifest in Revelation. In Revelation 5.13, and I, I do want to spend, just read a few verses to you to illustrate this a bit. In Revelation 5.13, we're coming to the end of that scene beginning in chapter 4 of this glorious scene in heaven of the worship of the Father and of the Son. He already at the end of chapter 4 has declared the 
glory of the Father, worthy are you to receive glory and honor for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. That is the planning of the Father. We see the worship of the Son who is the worthy one, the exalted one, the Messiah who had finished his work and he's worthy to take the book and to break its seals because he purchased in verse 9, for God with your blood from every tribe, tongue and nation. And then you drop down to verse 12, and it's the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches. And then down to verse 13, and it is the Father and the Son who equally share in the worship of heaven and of the angels and all the redeemed. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. They receive worship, the Father and the Son. They execute judgment together. Drop down to verse 16. Of Revelation, although all judgment has been committed to the Son by the Father, it is the Father and the Son from whom they want to hide those who are at the receiving end of this judgment, to fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And indeed, it is on the throne that both the Father and the Son share glory in their own way according to their persons. In verse 21, he says, he who overcomes, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In chapter 22, just listen, verse 1, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The point here is simply this, God acts as a trinity. And the glory of the Father, the presence of the Father, the majesty of the Father is bound to the glory and the presence and the majesty of the Son and, as we will see, of the Spirit. So the future presence of the Father coincides with the presence of the Son upon His return. And here is the encouragement in the Father, the God who called you, the God who made covenant, the God who has accomplished it, the God who has revealed Himself throughout all of Scripture, the God who has revealed Himself in the Son is the one who is coming. You can be assured of that. But He knows, interestingly, He moves to God the Spirit. And that's unusual in the order, typically, in Scripture. But he moves here from God the Father, who is and who was and is to come, particularly coinciding with the and in the coming of Christ, and the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this isn't a resting way to speak of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God who are before his throne, it's unusual. It's not typically how we speak of the Spirit. And in fact, because of the unusualness and because of the uniqueness of this, some think this isn't even the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. And some will argue that these are actually angels of God. These are angels of God. So some describe, one does, describes them in this way. They are the seven principal angels of God. Another one describes them in this way. They are a heavenly entourage that has a special ministry in connection with the Lamb. And in fact, the biblical argument for that of some is that it's made possible not only because of the way that there's parallels to this in Jewish literature and so forth, but in Scripture they say there is an anticipation of this, a hint of this. In Luke 9.26, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and of the Father and of the holy angels. 
as well in 1 Timothy 5.21. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ and of the chosen angels, the elect angels, holy angels. In addition to this, in Revelation itself, in chapter 8, verse 2, he speaks of the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And so those who see these as angels say there is, in fact, every reason to think that these are a particular group of angels of special significance who continually stand in the presence of God to do his will. However, although angels are prominent in the return of Christ and in judgment, so you remember again, as we read, but the words of Christ, he says that he will return in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels who will be a part of the execution of his judgment upon his return on the earth. However, without getting into details, of course, the primary reason for rejecting this is the idea of angels. The primary reason why that is not the right way to see the reference here, is this. Is that John is giving an epistolary greeting from God himself. And sandwiched in between the Father and the Son, it is very unlikely, indeed not likely at all, that he would include angels equal in that glory and prominence particularly as inconsistent as that is with every epistolary greeting throughout the New Testament, which is from God, which is from God. That's the primary reason. But there's more. There's more. And in order to find out more, we'd ask, why does he use this statement? Why does he refer to the Holy Spirit then as the seven spirits of God? What's the connection there? That's an odd way to think of it. In order to answer that, and the answer becomes clear. And there's two other references here in Revelation. Let's just glance at them. Because we want to be clear about this. So in the vision, in <clears throat> Revelation chapter 4, verse through 5, beginning in verse 4, he says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. If you go back right up before that in verse 5, he said, Out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire be burning before the throne, which are the spirits of God, the seven spirits of God. So we'll swing back, but here the seven spirits of God are symbolized in these burning lamps that are before the throne. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, and this is the scene of the risen Christ taking from the Father the scroll that is bound with seven seals. And in verse 6, he says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now what is the picture here? What is the picture? He says in verse 5 again of chapter 4 that the seven spirits of God are the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. There is a picture here 
There is the imagery here of the holy place, of walking into the tent of the tabernacle and the first room of the temple in which there were the burning lamps that symbolized the presence of God with his people. And particularly, he's pulling up from the imagery of Zechariah. Just listen. I won't read the whole passage, but in Zechariah chapter 4, there is, there is this vision, this imagery that was given to the prophet. It says, the angel who was speaking with me in verse 1 returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. He goes on to see two olive trees, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on the left side. The angel speaking with me said, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. In verse 6, he said, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And these are the spirits, he says, who are sent out into all the earth. Verse 10 of Zechariah 4, who has despised the day of small things, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the land of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. The connection specifically here to Zerubbabel is to say that the presence of the Spirit is the strength and the power that will bring about and accomplish God's work, even through his chosen servants. The presence of the Spirit is the one who knows, who goes out, who sees, and who will act in the world to bring about his purposes. And John is specifically, through this vision given to him, connecting with this promise, this presence of the Spirit before God. So he's connecting with this vision of Zechariah. And he says here, as there were the seven spirits in, or the seven lampstands representing the Holy Spirit in Zechariah, here they are those who go out through all of the earth, the seven spirits of God, seeing, knowing, accomplishing Enabling all that God has determined to do in enabling his servants. So the portrayal of the Spirit here then is this. It emphasizes then the presence of God. It emphasizes the knowledge of God. It is meant to emphasize the power of God. That God is the one who will accomplish his purposes in the world through the churches and through his chosen servants. One puts it this way. The Holy Spirit then is the omnipresent executive of Christ's power and knowledge throughout the world. Another said this, the Spirit then is the means by which God will destroy the might and the power of the dragon and of the beast. So what is the encouragement to his people here? The seven spirits of God who are before his throne is to say these is the presence of the Holy Spirit who manifests himself immediately after in a word to the churches, but more specifically, it is the Spirit of God who is before God as the, 
who is the manifestation of the presence of God to his people, who is the empowering person in God's people to accomplish his work, who is the spirit who is in the world who will bring about surely what God has promised. Now think about this particularly. The rise of the power of the beast, which is soon to come in John's revelation, the seemingly indomitable influence of the false prophet, the united rebellion of the kingdoms of the earth under the sway of the dragon as he manifests himself in the beast, make the victory of the saints seem impossible. John is here saying, even as in old that God promised he would accomplish his works, and though the rise of the spirit of the Antichrist, indeed the very executor of the will of the Antichrist in the beast, the very powerful influence of deception in the false prophet, also manifesting the power and the influence of the Antichrist, is no match for the Spirit of God who will assure that God's word and God's purposes will come about. That is the idea. That it is not going to be, however, by your strength and by your power, and that's the connection with Zechariah, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The destruction of the beast will not come about by the united power of God's people on their own. Indeed, God will bring discipline to many of them, even at the beginning. Indeed, it will not come about even from the Jews who will be saved at this time and manifest the truth of the gospel among the earth. It will come about because God will bring it about by his power and by his spirit. One says this again. The seven spirits are the presence and power of God on earth, bringing about God's kingdom by implementing the Lamb's victory throughout the world. So there is the encouragement. The Father who has promised it, the Father who is to come, the Spirit who will be the power of the Word of God, the empowering influence that will overcome the beast and the false prophet and the whore of Babylon. This is the one who is sending to you grace and peace. This is the one who is encouraging you. But then he moves to the Son. He moves to the Son, and that is in verse 5. Note, from him who is and who was, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. This is the triune God who's encouraging his people. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the one who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. He is the one who has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and his Father. He is the one to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's consider this because this really is at the heart of the encouragement. This really is at the heart of the encouragement. And he mentions the Son in this order because the Son is going to be the primary focus from here. It is the Father, yes, the Father who planned it, the Father who is coming, the Father who is the covenant-making God. It is the Spirit who is the before God, who is the power of God, the Spirit who is moving out in all of the earth to accomplish the will of God and the purposes of God. And all of that is centered on Christ. He is the center of God's 
purposes. He is the center of God's salvation. He is the center of God's judgment. He is the center of God's kingdom purposes. And so he is described here then as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. You could say the witness or the faithful one, but the faithful witness is better here. The term has the idea of bearing testimonies to one's belief. We get the idea of martyr from this term. Martyr. But in its own, it has the idea merely of bearing testimony, not, not necessarily of death. However, when it is connected to the testimony of Christ, death is right behind it and is attached to this word. To bear testimony to the truth of God in a world at hostility with God is to bring upon oneself the threat of persecution and suffering and death. But here Christ stands as the, the preeminent one of that Reality. He is the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. And in Revelation, this term consistently refers to one who bears witness to the truth about Christ with the consequence of death. And that's where the idea of Christian martyr. The one who bears witness to Christ with the consequence of death for that witness. But Christ stands as the preeminent one, the one whom these have believed And who has gone before. He is presented as the ultimate witness of God. You think of this, even as we think of Christmas season, what is the opening words of John who gives us the theological context for the coming of Christ? He is the Word made flesh, and He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. He says later in verse 18, He is the one who has revealed the Father. Everything about the life and the ministry of Christ was to accomplish the purposes and the plan of the Father. Every word he spoke, he spoke not of his own initiative, but he speaks only what he hears from the Father. He does always what is pleasing to the Father. He remains in the Father's love. Why? Because I always keep the Father's word. This is manifest most dramatically, of course, in the garden, If there is another way, I'm open to it. But he says, your will be done. That's what he came to accomplish was the will of the Father. And in doing so, he gave himself to be the faithful witness of the truth of God. And that witness would be the witness of God that would be with the determination according to the purpose and the plan of God that it would lead to his death which would, of course, be an atoning death. So what way, then, is he the faithful witness to the truth? He's the faithful witness to the truth, and this is the encouragement to his people, because he bore witness to the truth of God in the face of opposition, in the face of great opposition. It wasn't an easy witness. He didn't get a long robe and the praise of the people. In fact, he stood at contention with the leaders of Israel. His message confronted them. So just listen. There's, of course, so many places we could go, but John chapter 8, he says this in John chapter 8, verse 37. I know, he says to these leaders, that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And then he says later in verses 43, these well-known words, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. 
You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. He was the faithful witness of God, even when it meant confronting the religious establishment, even when it meant confronting those who were acting according to the will of the devil. And that was ultimately the real conflict, wasn't it? He came to crush Satan on the head. And coming to crush Satan on the head to dispel light where Satan had brought lies, it would bring him in direct conflict with that kingdom of darkness and that ruler of darkness. But he did not flinch from speaking the word of God. He did not flinch from speaking everything that he needed to speak that was given to him by the Father to reveal the truth. He was the faithful witness. He was a faithful witness because he gave the truth even when he was facing death, not merely threat, not merely hostility, but death before the one who held, humanly speaking, that power in his hand, John 18, 37. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, I have been born for this reason, I have come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He is a faithful witness when standing between the opposition of the religious leadership who is under their influence of their spiritual father, the devil. He was a faithful witness when standing before the political power of Pontius Pilate, who merely with his word could have him crucified and put to death. He spoke the truth. And the word of God. And indeed, many of those to who were, would receive this word were going to face the same kind of situation. And they looked to Christ, the faithful witness. He was a faithful witness when he endured the cross and the persecution and loving submission to the Father, 1 Peter 2.23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He was a faithful witness when he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. We know these words of Hebrews. Remember, Hebrews was written to a group who were close to compromising. The cost was getting high. It was easier to go back to the old religious worship and system because it didn't bring the persecution. Some of them were in danger of losing what they had gained. And he's writing to encourage them. And he gives them an example of Hebrews chapter 11 and all of those who forsook this world and forsook even their own safety. Some hiding in caves, some sawn in two, some losing their sons, some widows, women receiving them back by resurrection. But then he gives the ultimate example and he says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He was a faithful witness against the opposition of even religious leaders, of even the very nation who were supposedly the spokesman for God, but had apostatized in their heart. He was a faithful witness against the political leaders of which he stood and bare testimony to the truth. 
He was the faithful witness to God, trusting him as he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for his people, not reviling in return. He was a faithful witness who hung on the cross once he was given up for execution because he knew that the end of it would be the joy that would be the fruit of his death and his resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. He was a faithful witness who then took on the experience of suffering so that he could come to the aid of his people, even those to whom he writes, even those who are this very day suffering and having to find a strength out of these words that we don't yet have to find who are suffering because they are a faithful witness who stand on the foundation of Christ. And so Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was the faithful witness for us. And even as Hebrews will later say that that faithful witness involved him learning obedience. Learning obedience in this sense. And that having a life prepared of perfect obedience to the Father to stand for the ultimate test, the ultimate temptation, the one in which he cried out with loud groanings and tears to be rescued from if there was another way, but ultimately knowing no sin in thought, word, motive, deed, intention in any way, yet yielded himself perfectly to the will of the Father and submitted in that submission, not only at that moment, but throughout his whole life, was ultimately so that he could be the author of our salvation, the accomplisher of our salvation. So he is the faithful witness. So to hear this word in light of everything that he's going to reveal, God's people find the encouragement of saying, yes, God is to come. Yes, God will accomplish his word to the Spirit. And yes, we have an example. We have the very foundation of our hope, the very foundation of our salvation, the very example that we follow after, and that is... Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the faithful witness. And indeed, they would need to hear this because, as already noted, those to whom he was writing and those who he's writing to in the future, anticipating the persecution to come, would have to follow the same path. Even in the present time, in chapter 2 verse 13, he says to the message of Pergamum, in the message of, to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They would need to look to the faithful witness who went before them, who endured the cross for the joy set before him, who being reviled did not revile in return, who stood against the onslaught and the lies and the threat of the evil one and of Satan, even at the cost of their own lives? How about in chapter 6, verse 9? Looking forward to this judgment is to come, knowing many are going to have to follow the same path because of their testimony of Christ. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony, there's our word, which they had maintained. It cost them their life. Chapter 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses 
And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are two that God will raise up to bear particular witness to a world in rebellion to God. And they would eventually lose their life. Verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him, those who are before the throne, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life even when faced with death. Chapter 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Chapter 19, verse 10. And then I fell at his feet. He did John to the angel for which he gets rebuked. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Chapter 20, verse 4. Looking forward to this kingdom when he actually has established his throne and fulfillment of all of the promises To David, he says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why? Because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so really, then Christ stands as the faithful witness and this is the encouragement because essentially the message To the churches then, the message to the people of God who will follow, and particularly the message to the people of God who will know a worldwide persecution in the coming days, is that this message is from the faithful witness, him who is faithful unto death, him who was faithful unto death because of the joy set before him, who was faithful unto death, and because of his faithfulness unto death as a witness to God, defeated death for those who follow him. This is essentially then the fulfilling of Christ's call to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Not only in the giving of our life and death, but the real heart of that, the hardest part of it actually, for many of us is that we learn to die daily to ourselves to follow him. Die daily to our own desires, die daily to our own plans, die daily to our own self-will, to yield our will in complete conformity and submission to the will of the Father. That is the lifelong goal. But here Christ stands first and foremost as the faithful witness, the faithful witness. And we'll pick up the other descriptions next week and finish down to the end. Have you followed Christ in that way? Have you followed Christ in the way that way? Have you seen Christ as the faithful witness to God? The one who was faithful to God for your salvation? Is he the one that you follow as a faithful witness? Even as those later in the book of Revelation and again throughout the history of the church, even today in other parts of the world that we're unfamiliar with. He is the faithful witness 
Does it mean something to you when God says in Scripture, does that cause you to stop and to pause when the God who is the holy God of creation, the holy God of infinite glory, of eternality, the eternal God says to you, a sinner, weak, guilty by nature, and yet, and his son says, grace, peace to you. The war is over. The hostility has been brought to an end because I have brought it to an end, because I have borne it for you, grace to you. Is it an encouragement to know that with the rise of all of the evil and even the devil who prowls around, even the devil who offers the kingdoms to Christ because temporarily they belong to him? It says in Luke, they have been given to me. But yet we know that the power of God and the spirit of God is greater than the spirit who is in the world and he will accomplish his purposes. Does that bring encouragement? It should. And it's encouragement that's gonna get only greater. But this faithful witness of Christ is even the one whom we remember in the table. And we bear witness to him. We bear witness to our faith in him. We bear witness that we are the fruit of his resurrection. We bear witness that we have given our lives to him by taking these bread, as it were, and this cup. We're bearing witness to our faith in Christ. I would just give this question to myself and to you. Do we bear witness not merely in the taking of the cup and the comfort of the sanctuary, but when we leave and we wake up in the morning with the way we use our time, with the things that we desire? Do we follow him as faithful witnesses? Do we follow the one who's gone before us? When you ask God for the strength to do so and praise him for the forgiveness for our failures as we look to him in hope and in trust that he will bring about what he has promised. Let's pray, and then the men will hand out the elements. Father, thank you for the testimony of your word. And, and Lord, there's, there's so many glories there that in some ways are, are easy to look at your word and to, to put it together and to, to see the implications, but how much grace we need not merely to acknowledge these things that are true, but to embrace them by faith. And to follow the Lamb, may we be those who do not love our lives even unto death. May we be those who look to you, O Christ, our faithful witness. And all those who have gone before us, our brethren, who have followed the Lamb to the end of their life, whatever it costs them. May we see you and remember your grace as we take these elements Symbols and pictures, yes, but of divine and profound and glorious realities that we are the body of Christ, purchased by your blood, indwelled by your spirit, united by your spirit. We are those who have received grace. Taking these elements is a picture to say that we are at peace with you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because of the cross, because of the resurrection. May we be encouraged and strengthened in our faith through them. We ask this blessing from you in the name of Jesus. Amen.